that we just join in your word. Um, we're grateful for the worship of your people and just uh, the preparation of our hearts to receive from you. We ask that you would just use your word mightily today, um, God, that you would draw us nearer uh, to you in faith and obedience and love, ultimately for Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. Apart from him, we are nothing. We have nothing. And so, God, we, uh, uh, we're very grateful uh, for the gospel. We pray today people would be moved by that more than anything. In Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. Well, um, Pastor Brett is currently in Berlin, Germany uh, with a team. Uh, he's there with Zach Stewart and uh, Seth Wyram, both uh, are men who have just decided to follow the Lord uh, in obedience and have given their lives to, to full-time ministry or the pursuit of that. And so this has been a great trip for Brett and those guys to go and uh, um, see Europe, of course, but then minister to a faithful congregation over there. And uh, from what I've heard, Zach and Seth are both uh, being stretched, um, doing things things that they didn't necessarily sign up to do at the start, or at least the frequency of those things, and um, um, they're actually joining in worship today, uh, which is kind of cool about, you know, them. They do a lot of their services in the evening, uh, which they're like six hours ahead of us, so we end up worshiping at the same time, which is cool. So even right now, uh, um, they're together at their retreat uh, worshiping as well, and so uh, we join them in that. I'll be thinking of them and their families um, as you, uh, if, if you would, and be praying for them uh, and their wives and families that they've left behind. And uh, we'll look forward to hearing uh, more from them uh, this coming week and, and when they get back. Um, so I want to go ahead and just start by just, you know, trying to draw some, uh, some empathy to the context of Mark chapter 1. By the way, Mark chapter 1 is where we're going to be today. Mark chapter 1, looking at verses 1 through 6. And we'll read that passage in a moment. But do you know the feeling? Uh, the feeling of being forced into a season of patience. Forced into a season of waiting. It's not fun. It's not easy, right? Um, and, and maybe you know that feeling. Cancer, uh, medical issues similar to that. Um, this is notorious for putting people into that uh, state of, of forced, forced waiting, forced um, patience. You don't have a choice. It's beyond your control. Marital discord, uh, the rebellion of a teen or a loved one, poverty, abuse, anxiety, depression, all of these things can leave the heart just wondering, is this, is this really ever going to end? Is this ever going to stop? And if you know that feeling, well, then you can empathize with God's people that we read about in the Gospel of Mark, uh, because that's the state that they lived in for hundreds and hundreds of years. In this state of, of waiting, waiting for the Messiah, waiting for, for the Messiah to come and bring relief and bring comfort. And they had the promise, but after, you know, a few hundred years, you start to maybe lose faith. And what we have here um, is, is the start of the Gospel of Mark. And all four of the Gospels, they start on the backside of this 400-year span of time. Right, So from the last book of the Old Testament all the way to the arrival of Christ, there were 400 years where the oppression and the affliction and the chaos upon God's chosen people, the Jews, uh, was just exponential. It wasn't great in the Old Testament either, but during that 400 years, they were under the, the strong thumb of the Persian Empire. And it led to this, this, this unrest, right? They, they didn't have, or they, it, was, it was just oppressed faith. And then the stronger thumb of the Roman Empire led by Alexander the Great, right? Um, and then, uh, of course, you have their own political leaders, their own religious leaders giving themselves to corruption. Uh, and just this is the condition of God's people. And after 
a long season of waiting with these conditions, you can imagine how your faith might, might get quite diluted. Once you've been beaten and broken and tattered over and over and over again, faith seems to take the hit most of all. Maybe you know that feeling. You've been forced into a season of waiting and, and your faith took a hit. Maybe you're here today on the backside of that thing. Like, I go to church, and, and that's part of what I've always done, but I, I barely believe in this stuff anymore. God's just failed me too many times. So today, I hope you see that your patience, your waiting, the Lord still has an answer for you. The Lord is still your comfort. And sometimes it's those seasons of patience and those seasons of waiting that help us understand that comfort even better. And so today, you can empathize with, uh, with the people uh, of Mark. And by the way, wouldn't it make sense in God's redemptive plan of grace that in order to prepare the people and to start repairing the faith so that they might turn and, and know God and, and see his Messiah whenever he actually comes, wouldn't it make sense that God would send a herald, a messenger, Someone to come ahead of the Lord and say, hey, turn your heads towards God because he's about to do something and I'm preparing the way for that. Well, that was John the Baptist. That's, that's, what, uh, that's the ministry of John the Baptist. And so that's who we're looking at today. We're looking at uh, um, this record of this man, one of the most notable figures in, in all Christendom, and yet there's not much about him in the Bible Surprisingly, there's, there's a little bit, but that's who we're going to be looking at today. And so I'm going to invite Roxanne, who's going to come up, and she's going to read uh, our passage today. Roxanne, are you? There you are. Great. I'm a little traumatized because in our first service, our, our uh, oh, sorry, Lisa. <laughs> I didn't think you were going to be in here. So anyways, well, you just called yourself out, though. Yeah, you did. All right. So, Roxanne, we're going to read uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. If you have a copy of the scriptures, and, uh, would you stand in the honor of reading God's word this morning? Good morning. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. You can have a seat. Well, this has just been a fun and surprising beginning to our day, so uh, I really hope this just continues. Um, but what we're looking at today is the ministry of John the Baptist, uh, this man who was uh, to prepare the way of the Lord. And by the way, uh, John the Baptist, just to clear up any confusion, John the Baptist actually did not write any of the books of, of the Scriptures, right? There's a few notable Johns in the Scriptures. John the Baptist is one of them. Uh, another very notable one is John the Apostle, who was the brother of James, uh, the son of Zebedee, one of the sons of Thunder, and one of the closest, if not the closest, disciple of Jesus. And he's the one who actually wrote the five books of the New Testament that are attributed to John, being the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then uh, uh, the book of Revelation. So John the Baptist, though a very, very notable figure, did not write any books of the New Testament. In fact, um, there's not a lot about him in the Scriptures. 
Um, there's just not a lot about him. We, we see a record of his death. Uh, we see what he came to do, uh, but when it comes to just his life story and stuff, there's just not a lot. And yet, it's Jesus who said in Matthew 11, verse 11, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared. Now, that's a remarkable statement, isn't it? Hey, Luke, can you fix that feedback? I'm just going to talk to you through this whole thing since we've already broken the fourth wall here. So, All right, so among those born of women... No one greater than John the Baptist has appeared. And what I want to do today is just look at why Jesus might say that. Look at the greatness of John's ministry and try to understand what was it about what John did and how he did it that was so great that Jesus would say such a thing. And the first I would point out is this. Uh, the fancy term for it, for it in the scriptures is election. Uh, but basically what it is is that it was never John's ministry. Rather, it was a ministry that God chose him for. It was not his ministry. And the reason that it was so great is because it wasn't his ministry. It was God's ministry for him. God chose John for this ministry. John never had the lead in the ministry that he had. He never had the lead. And it wasn't also something that he could choose his way out of because he didn't choose his way into it. And listen, for those of us who understand the reality of living as though we are chosen, this is a fortifying experience to our faith. This is fortifying and strengthening. And despite what it sounds like, living as those who are chosen is not meant to spur on pride. It's meant to, uh, to, to overcome it through humility and yet still confidence, right? So there's two things I'd like to say about this idea of, uh, of, of being chosen, to this salvation, being chosen into ministry. And the first is this, is that all of God's people, I believe this is true for all of us, that we must live as though we are chosen, not as the chooser. We've got to live as the chosen and not the chooser. This is very important, so please listen, right? The Bible is clear that if you're here and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, or maybe you're not yet, but you feel God stirring, that this is a matter of choosing, that he's drawing you to himself, that he is choosing you for this salvation, for, for the work and ministry that he's prepared for you. And Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6 speaks to this. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he has lavished on us in the beloved one. Before the foundations of the world, you've been chosen to this faith. Before the foundations of the world, you have, you have been chosen and apportioned to gifts and grace so that you can fulfill the purpose that God has called for you. This is huge. This is a really, really big deal. It's humbling, isn't it? Because it means that, that, that everything that God has given you, everything about your ministry, everything about your salvation, it comes with the immense purpose and yet also a confidence to live in that purpose because we know that everything we have is for God and from God. When we live as the chooser, when we begin to think that our faith is something of our own accord, something that we can do or not do at our convenience, this is when pride settles in. Pride becomes a trapping. We become vulnerable to doubt, 
because our purpose seems tied merely to, to, to nothing bigger than us, basically our own decisions, and that's about it. And when this happens, listen, our confidence is not real. It's not something that truly empowers humble ministry. It's just an insecure appearance of trust that covers really a frantic and doubting heart. Listen, every radical thing that has ever happened in the Bible and every radical thing that still happens for the Lord happens through people who understand they've been chosen for the task. They've been chosen for the task. Abraham was a chosen race. Moses, the chosen servant. Mary, the chosen mother of the Lord. Jesus, the chosen son, the one. God chose him for that task. The apostle Paul, chosen undeniably, right? He's on the road to Damascus. He gets blasted off of his horse, right? He's clearly chosen for what he was called to do. You think about the disciples, each one of them chosen by name, by Jesus. Every martyr, everyone who's ever lost their life for the faith, if you read through the New Testament, read books like First and Second Peter where persecution was on high level and you'll understand that they endured that because they were chosen for that time and purpose. Every martyr, every great sacrifice, every radical act of faith, it all happened and still happens through people who understand they've been chosen for this. They don't have a choice. The only thing for them to do is to respond in obedience, to respond with faithfulness, and then watch God use their lives or their death to bring glory to his name, to expand his kingdom. And they will be honored and they'll be glorified through the process. This is what radical faith leads us to. But if we feel like the choice is in our hands, and let's be honest, we almost always do. We feel like it's always in our hands, then we're not going to choose God's way. If the choice is yours, you're not going to choose his way. Rather, we'll do whatever we need to do to stay complacent and comfortable, because that's what we love. We love the route of comfortable faith. If I can get Jesus but without any cost, it's perfect. We need to understand today that comfortable faith is a result of serious pride and sin. That's not as harmless as we all think it is. It's completely devastating to the motion of the gospel of Christ. So, that's the first thing. We need to live as those chosen, not the chooser. Second thing is this, is that we've got to be glad and content in our portion. In what God has chosen us and called us to, we must be glad and content in these things. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7, it says, Grace has been given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Which means each one of you, you have graces and gifts in your life that God has given you. And it might look different, very different than what he's given other people. But the point is not to compare and contrast what you have versus what other people have and to hope for what other people have and to look down on what other people have. The point is that you would find contentment and gladness in what God has given you and that you would use it faithfully. That's the point. Now, John was an incredibly gifted person, right? You don't eat locusts and wild honey and then post up in the wilderness and then have the entire Judean countryside come and visit you unless you're a seriously gifted person. He was a gifted teaching uh, teacher and preacher. He he spoke with authority and clarity. He was able to command the, the, the area. He led the people. He had charisma and personality. He was bold. He was fearless. And God gave John the Baptist all of these things, these many gifts and more, to accomplish the the purpose that he had for him. 
But make no mistake, John's greatness was not merely a matter of effortless favor. It required faithfulness. John lived up to his calling through the faithfulness and obedience of his life. And this is great, right? Because, I mean, you think about the most remarkable Christians that you've ever known. I'll think about the most remarkable Christians that I've ever known, and they're usually not the ones on the stages and on the screens. They're usually not wealthy from a, from a ton of resources. In fact, many of them are, are barely notable. They often come from broken homes and limited incomes, but the faithfulness of their lives to use what God has given them, whether that be much or little, and to use it with contentment and faithfulness in their hearts, man, God uses these, these conditions far more than the most influential but discontent Christians. Our world lacks contentment. We love wealth and influence and comfort, and the result of this is that we just have a people who are peaceless, unsettled, anxious. We have all of the opportunity in the world, and what it's creating is just chaos. But the, for those whose focus is not on the world, but it's on Christ and faithfulness to him and whatever it is that he is apportioned to them, even if they seem very disadvantaged in the world's eyes, they are more prone to contentment, more prone to joy, to peace, to gospel effectiveness, and to heaven readiness than even the most influential Christian. And so we need to understand that John's greatness was one of faithfulness, faithfulness. And I pray the same is true for us, that our minds would not give over to just spiritual comparison and envy. I mean, it is just not for us to take what we have and compare it to what someone else has and, and to look at my influence and my ministry and my opportunity and compare it to somebody else's and think, I want theirs. And it's also even worse for me to look at everything I have and to look at everything somebody else has and think, wow, I got it way more together than they do. God loves me more than he loves them. He's given me more than he's given them. No, our charge is to be faithful with what we have, regardless of what that is. And those who are faithful with little, the Bible says, will be faithful with much. Those who can be trusted with little can be trusted with much. John's greatness was one of faithfulness. But listen, let's just continue on this idea of him being chosen by God for this task, right? He wasn't just God's chosen instrument for this particular ministry, but, but John's ministry had been foretold and anticipated for hundreds of years before he was born. Can you imagine that? There's nowhere in some holy book that says, you know, and someday the man named Adam's going to come and he's going to kind of preach somewhat okay and his church services are going to be filled with a lot of errors and weird happenings. Like, there was nothing foretold about me outside of the fact that, that God has pretested me to do good works in his name. But John the Baptist, Jesus, you know, these people specifically, there was a lot of uh, anticipation about their coming. And we see here in, uh, in Mark, let's read verses 2 and 3, it says this. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. You have a few passages here from the Old Testament written hundreds, hundreds of years before John was born, and yet they're speaking to the ministry of John the Baptist. That's pretty remarkable, isn't it? Not only that, but if you know John the Baptist's birth and family, there was a lot of stuff happening around that that just people would think, wow, so God's up to something here with this person, right? He, he was the son of Zechariah, who was a priest. 
Zechariah was married to Elizabeth, who was a direct descendant of the very first high priest of all of Israel, Aaron, Moses' brother. So you talk about family heritage. They had that down. She was also a close relative to Mary, who was Jesus' mother. So that's a good thing. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're both old now. She's barren. And if you know the Bible at all, you know that these are perfect conditions to have your first child, old and barren, because he did that with people numerous times. And so Elizabeth uh, uh, has, has a son. But before she has that son, just to top it all off, Jesus or, or God actually sends an archangel to visit the family, right? He sends Gabriel straight from heaven to say, hey, you're going to have a son. It's the same angel who carried the same message to, uh, to Mary and Joseph about Jesus. Imagine the curiosity and the anticipation and the excitement that surrounded John's birth and upbringing. I can only imagine. But there must have been just kind of a standing understanding that this man's something. Something's about this man. Now, this is a good point for me to just say he was still only a man. And we're going to look at this more uh, next week. He was still only a man, so don't mistake him for being a Messiah. But understand that his, his ministry was one of greatness because God had much in store for him, had called him to much, and had chosen him for much. It was God's ministry. God had to lead. Second thing I would say about the, uh, about the greatness of his ministry is this is that he was chosen by God for this, but, but the nature of his ministry was that of preparation, and not just simple preparation, but like preparation for the coming of the Messiah. It's a big deal. The world's been waiting on this, right? The Jews have been waiting on it for, for a long time, but the world's been waiting from, for this ever since the fall. And so, he's referred to as a herald, someone who prepares the way, a messenger, in ancient times, this messenger, this herald, herald was the one who traveled the road ahead of the king to check the conditions and safety of the road and to announce the king's arrival, to prepare the people for the coming of the king. But listen, what need is there for a herald if the path is already clear and the people are already waiting in great anticipation? You don't need someone to come and, and get everybody ready and try, try to repair things. Like You don't need that. But that wasn't the conditions of these people, was it? As we said, their faith had been bruised, tattered, deluded. Perhaps they hoped to see Messiah in their lifetime, but, but many of them probably didn't really, really believe it. I kind of equate it to the way that we think about the way Christ is going to come again. They're waiting for his first arrival. We're waiting for another one. And we hope for it, yet it still kind of feels mysterious to us, doesn't it? And to be honest, a lot of us are just, it feels too mysterious and kind of too out of our touch that it doesn't really offer anything to fortify our faith. It doesn't change the way we live at all. We kind of believe it. We think it's going to happen, but it's kind of mysterious, and it has no impact on how we live now. But that's not what the New Testament calls us to, is it? Look at uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 4 through 6. This is how we should be living in anticipation of his coming. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in the dark for this day to surprise you like a thief. Right? This day being the Lord's coming should not be surprising to us if we are living in anticipation of it. He says, for you are all children of light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. So then let us not sleep like the rest, but let us stay awake and be self-controlled. It's 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. It says, therefore, dear friends, while you wait for these things, the coming of the Lord, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in his sight at peace 
and also regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. I love that line and that thought, right? Because the encouragement for us uh, as we live in anticipation of his coming is this. Don't fall asleep. Make every effort for purity and holiness in your own life. And know that every single day the Lord does not come back as another day for salvation for others. And he's called us to that. Every day he doesn't come back. The only reason he has not come back yet is because there's more people that need to come in. It's an act of kindness and patience. And when we live this way, it will be of no surprise to us when he actually shows up because we were waiting for it the whole time. We were looking for it the whole time. And we weren't looking for it, looking for it how, how many people do, which is doing nothing now in obedience and love and just, just craving the day when he comes back because their life just feels like crap. You know, they, they're just looking for, for complete relief and don't do, they don't apply that into helping other people see him or know him. This is a, a, a way of alertness and burden and fervency in our faith that, that preserves our own faith but also helps other people do the same. Yet this is not what a lot of people live out, is it? I've heard it said uh, a lot of times that, that our world, the American world, is, um, has been lulled to sleep by Satan himself. We have a very sleepy people, a very sleepy church Burden and urgency and fervency don't become the, the American church. And I hope FBN's different, and I think it is in a lot of ways. But let's be real. There's a lot of sleepy Christians out there, aren't there? And it was the same burden and urgency and fervency that John was calling the people to. A call to faith. I love that. And so his method to do it. Right, He was chosen by God, and he had, he had this wonderful preparatory work that he was to do, and his method of doing it was proclamation. Look with me at verse uh, 4, uh, going through 6. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were baptized him by the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey, which I love that detail, and we'll talk about that more uh, next week. But his proclamation was the most important proclamation that there has ever been and ever will be, and it was the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins for, the, for those who turn their heads to God. It's the same proclamation of the old prophets. It's the same proclamation that we share now in the power of Jesus Christ, that you might turn your heart and your mind to God and know his Messiah. It's the greatest proclamation, and so it would become the, one of the greatest ministries that we've ever seen in the preparation for the Messiah. Repentance, by the way, many of you know this, means to turn or to change your mind. Forgiveness literally means to dismiss or release. So John's proclamation is one that he says of baptism, which is this public expression of someone who has changed and turned their minds towards God. And the result of which is that God releases them from their sin. Through that, man, there is comfort and relief of the heart and of the spirit that so many people need. 
but it comes through eyes fixed on God, unencumbered by the distraction and clutter of sin. By the way, this is why so many of John's disciples, John had his crew of disciples. In fact, he still has disciples today. We'll talk about that more next week. But this is why some of his disciples were some of Jesus' first disciples. Andrew, for example, uh, Jesus' the first one of the twelve was a follower of John the Baptist, but through John the Baptist's ministry was somehow ready to see that Jesus was the Messiah, and so he goes and follows the Messiah, and guess what? He grabs his brother, too, who was Peter. We know who Peter is, right? The rock upon which the church stands. I mean, he is, he is one of the most notable figures in, in, of our faith. This all came from John the Baptist's ministry to prepare uh, people and to proclaim readiness for the Messiah. And can I go ahead and just say, and we'll start winding down with this, that this message that he preached, this proclamation of confession and repentance and forgiveness of sins, it's as relevant today as it's ever been. It was as relevant today as it was when he was baptizing people in the Jordan River. It's, it's what we need, and it's what we need ongoing now, if you've never had that encounter with your sin where you take your sin seriously and realize that, that apart from Christ, you are only bound to your sin and the chaos that comes from that forever, right? You need to deal with that initially and, and wholeheartedly and give yourself to the Lord and let him redeem you and let him, let him repair you. Let him restore everything in you that he created you for so that you might be released from that burden through the grace of Jesus Christ, But for us who are believers, we need this ongoing, don't we? We need constantly to remember to to release our sins to the Lord, that by his grace and by his gospel, we have constant access and constant ability to not be bound in our sins. I mean, if you're here and you know Jesus Christ and you're enslaved to your sin, that's because of you. That's because you've chosen that. It's always that way. We confuse it and we act like we need more support or more 12-step plans or more of all of these things to help rid us of this sin. But if you have Jesus Christ in your life, if you have the Holy Spirit in your life and you still feel enslaved to sin, that's because that's what you've chosen. That's all it is. The way out of that is confession and repentance and to let him forgive you again and to trust his gospel, to understand that no no, no matter how far you are, how deep you are, how out of control you feel, The gospel is there for you and is powerful for you to lift you out of that. Choose him. There's some things that we learn about faith. This was his ministry, right? It was a big call to faith. And and there's some things we know about faith in the scriptures. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says, Now without faith it is impossible to please God. Without faith it is impossible to please God since those who draw near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And to further this, we read this, Romans chapter 14, verse 23. Everything that is not from faith is sin. Everything that is not from faith is sin. Faithlessness is sinfulness. To live your life absence, in absence of acknowledging God, of turning your heart and your head to God. Of, of a, I mean, you don't have to be going around killing people and smoking everything to still be living a very sinful life. Faithlessness is sinfulness. And to live a very kind, peaceful, uh, um, um, not harmful life that has no faith for God is just as sinful as anything else. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. And everything apart from faith is sin. 
And perhaps you came in today just distracted or even deadened in your faith. Maybe you play the game on Sundays, but your passions and your desires, they lie elsewhere. And your faith is so far down the list of priorities that aside from Sunday morning, your faith is hardly considered. It's rarely something of joy and gladness. And I pray that today you would understand that a life distracted from faith is a life of sin, and it always breeds chaos. Some of you feel that. You feel that chaos. Some of you have been so desensitized by your sin, you don't even really care anymore. But through confession and repentance, the Lord can renew and refresh and resensitize you to the blessing of faith to the purpose and identity that that brings, to the comfort, to the spirit, and to the soul that that brings. By the way, comfort is the promise, isn't it? We can harp on sin all, all day long, and, and we kind of like to do that sometimes because it's necessary. But comfort is the point. Comfort's the promise. Right? In fact, in Isaiah chapter 40, uh, where we see the verses that we see here uh, in verse 3 of Mark chapter 1, before that we see What this ministry was, even more fully, right? In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1 says this, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her time of hard service is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned. And she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. And we equate that to New Testament days as, as Jesus Christ has paid for that double over what we deserve. And then listen, verse 3, and it's the same verse 3 that we see here in Mark 1. A voice of one crying out, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make straight highway for God in the desert. To John the Baptist, his ministry was certainly a call to faith, certainly a challenge against personal sin. But it was a call to comfort as well. Ultimately, it was the comfort that, that we desperately need. It's not always the comfort we want or prefer, that of easy and costless living in faith. But it's the comfort of the Messiah, the comfort of salvation, the comfort of a clear identity, the comfort of, uh, of clear purpose, the comfort of being used by God and, and knowing what sacrifice for him is like and experiencing the joy in that, the comfort of, of God who saw our desperation and he tended to it personally. In the same way that Jerusalem waited, was, was without peace and was unsettled, Waiting for her pardon through the Messiah, we see now that Jesus came to restore much more than a nation. He came to restore everything back to himself and to redeem all who would believe in him in faith. And I would imagine in a room this size, there are plenty here who are not resting in the comfort of God. You're not resting in that comfort. Maybe you're here and you don't know the Lord personally, and so of course you have a discomfort You have a discomfort in life because you know and probably sense and feel if you're here today that there's something out here that is bigger for you and that is for you and that you don't have. And today is your day to receive that and to find that comfort, that comfort of salvation. But listen, if you're here today, maybe you have trusted in Christ. Maybe you used to live a very vibrant faith in the Lord, but but you've been beaten. You've been tattered. You've been burdened. You feel distant from God. I just want you to know that it doesn't have to be that way. And it's not because of him that it is that way. But the reality is this, that we do not know and we will not know the comfort of God's design and purpose for us until we start living in it. 
We will not know the comfort of God's design and purpose for us until we start living in it. I think some of us are here today just waiting for something to prove to us that Jesus is worth it all. He's worth the devotion of your life. Maybe, maybe so-and-so or maybe this experience or whatever. Maybe, maybe these will help me understand that he's worth the devotion and obedience of my life. And I pray today that you would just change your approach because it's a wrong approach. Instead of waiting on something else or someone else to prove it all to you, believe in him now. Trust him today. Turn your heads and your hearts to him and obey his word, and he's going to prove it himself. And that's way better. And I want to say this too, if you're here and you feel these things stirring in your heart, maybe you are a believer and and you feel the Lord stirring in a particular area of faithlessness in your life and you realize, oh, this just isn't faithfulness, this is also sinfulness and I need to do something about that. Or maybe you're here and you feel these stirrings for the first time. Something's stirring in your heart and you don't know how to pinpoint it. You don't know how to define it, but something's happening. You need to know that this is the wonderful work of God drawing you to faithfulness. He's pulling you in. He's called you out. He's chosen you for a faithfulness that he he demands from your life and that is actually the right and only way to peace and comfort for your soul and for your spirit. This is what he does. In John chapter 6, verse 44, it says, No one, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 12, 32, As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. That was Jesus again. And then John 15, 16, listen to what Jesus says to his disciples. You did not choose me. I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give to you. Be drawn. Let him draw you in. Produce fruit. Understand you've been chosen. And you'll have the blessings of the Father. Anything you ask for, you'll have. Certainly, glory, faith, wisdom, All of the things that he's told us to ask for, you will have it. If you feel God drawing you in, I pray that you would not try to to delay the inevitable. You can't really stand against God. He's doing this work. The best thing for you to do is just to respond in belief and humility. Respond faithfully. You don't have to know everything about Jesus to start following him. That's a huge myth. You don't have to know everything about him. You don't have to know exactly what he's calling to you right now. If you feel the stirring, your only, your only response is to just trust that he, trust in his death, trust in his resurrection, trust in his power, confess and repent of your disbelief, and then start living in the fullness of life that he's called you to. And I pray that you would do that today. Let's pray. Our Father, draw us into faithfulness, God. In the ways that you're stirring among us now, I pray that no one in here would have, have a heart trying to just ignore that. God, for anybody who's fighting what you're doing in their life right now, I pray that you would just let them give up the fight this moment. Give them faith. Give them humility. Give them what they need to respond to you rightly in accordance with, what you're, with your word and what you've called them to. Thank you for choosing us and calling us to, uh, to serve you and to join you in ministry. Thank you for saving us. Father, for anyone in here who's never responded to you in faith, I pray that today would be their day. God, that they would just simply confess in their hearts of their disbelief and tell you, tell you that they're sorry. 
tell you that they're looking to you now for their answers, that they're going to trust your way and give you a chance to prove yourself to them. God, that you might save them and give them fullness of life, Father. Even now, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, as we normally do, there's a few things on the screen that you can use to kind of pray about what you've heard today. If God pinpointed something already, you pray about that. Whatever that is, that you would follow him in faithfulness and obedience, whatever he's stirring in your heart. And then after that, we're going to see the witness of baptism, a young man who, uh, he hasn't figured it all out yet, but he, he's trusting God. He's just letting Jesus, he's saying yes to Jesus, and he'll let the Lord help him figure it out along the way. And so we'll celebrate in baptism in just a little bit. But first, why don't you have a few moments between you and the Lord um, and let him, let him carry these stirrings on to faithfulness.